0: This is The Diabolique Radio Show, and I'm your host, Stephen Slaughterhead, and that's my real name. This is the first episode of The Diabolique Podcast, and we hope you enjoy it. I'm speaking with David Kleiler, the former artistic director of the Coolidge Corner Theater and film professor at Babson College here in Massachusetts. And we're going to talk about Jean Cocteau's 1946 fantasy classic, Beauty and the Beast, which has just been released by the Criterion Collection on Blu-ray, with a whole bunch of new special features. Let's check out the trailer.
1: David. Hi. Hello, Steve. Thanks for joining us today. Well, I'm glad to be here, and we come to two different perspectives for this film. Um, For me, it's a film that I've seen a few times, but not in the last 20 years. And you're hmm. just new to the film.
0: Yes, I watched it twice yesterday. I had w- attempted to watch it numerous times over the past couple of weeks, but I kept falling asleep. <laughs> it's, not, it's not the movie. I'm a busy guy. <laughs> that, not a reaction so, to the film.
1: Uh, right, 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 right. No, How no, does it strike no, no. you? Uh, I hear this film 65 years old. Yeah, that's uh, hard you, to believe. Hard to believe, 1946. And mm. you, um, you know the film's legendary, so you came to it unlike the first time I saw it, yeah, um, with certain expectations. Um, well, I don't, to tell you the truth, I don't know if that, if, if that worked out for me. I
0: did have certain expectations. I really saw it more of a – before having seen it, I had this impression of it as being more like a classic art film. Like, um, you know, you know it's, it's something just so high – so far and above uh, other things that are out there. And uh, after having watched it twice yesterday and watched some of the supplemental material on the Criterion DVD, which I'll, I'll talk about that uh, mm-hmm. shortly, um, I must say, I'm, I am I, I w- I was impressed. Uh, I, uh, I, I was amazed by some of the photographic tricks that Cocteau uses in the film, but I think like I had this overwhelming sense of just kind of being creeped out by it. And this creeped is this. There. Yes. But, and I, and I realized that's not the original intent of the film, obviously, obviously it was intended as a, uh, you know, as a children's fable, given the fact that there are some kind of a couple of violent moments in the film, but that sort of goes hand in hand with fairy tales. Um, but I think it, it, be, because it's aged, it's sixty-five years old, and what was not intended to be creepy kind of does creep me out a little. It, it, particularly the makeup of of the beast, and uh, and and the production design. But but
1: that's just you know that's just something that happened, I guess, over the course of time. Well, this it, is why where I come in on the, uh, the, the, the being um, being an art film, the thing is magnificently photographed. The uh, set design uh, is is outstanding. And um, uh, even today, films uh, might have more technical abilities, mm-hmm. but this is really pure, raw, physical design. Um, it's amazing. And you've got that, I think, capturing the spirit of many fairy tales, um, you've got the mixture of awe. What the castles like the candelabras with the uh, you know with the hands and all that stuff.
0: Yeah, it is. It is a a, a kind of uh, insp- inspiring uh, moment. It, it it's one of those weird things for me. I mean, you to see a, a a hallway in Beast's Castle that is populated by arms that yeah. extend from the wall holding holding candelabras. You're like, oh man, this is creepy. It's like the house itself is alive. You
1: know? Well, that is that's true, and that's one of the great things there. So on the one hand, I think it. it uh, it inspires both awe and, um, awe and wonder and on the, mm-hmm. and a little bit of fear
0: yes, and as, as the that underlies himself.
1: Yeah. He, he's a great beast he's not here, here he's this you know beast uh but yet he's courtly and and in his own kind of way appealing and uh so that um and it gets to the more primordial aspects of the fairy tale i mean mm-hmm. i mean we all know what it's like to um uh, to be attracted to people who may be bad for us uh, that and, that is the strange attraction of the beast I suppose I think so and uh, to a certain extent that's maybe part of, of Cocteau's intention but the artistry mm-hmm. even later on when he does Orpheus and that's about what 1949 yeah yeah uh, he's got he's, he's got Orpheus walking through a door that kind of thing so, so these things mm-hmm. aren't unknown to him uh, that that the idea of um, more even though that was one done with his camera and, and you know, obviously special effects, but there was, it goes a lot through the design of the films. I think that's where, where the thing's in. That's why I think it is does work as an adult fairy tale.
0: Yes, uh, yes. You know, and I was intrigued to find out that he took much inspiration for his production designs from paintings. And the film is – uh, based on two different styles the the uh, the beginning the the first portion of the film I guess maybe the first 25% when um, just to quickly say we're at the the merchant's house mm-hmm. and uh, in the story of the film uh, the merchant has three daughters and and one son the two older daughters are uh, just vicious hateful daughters and of course uh uh, beauty bell is the uh is the i guess i guess when she was a, a child as far as the fairy tales uh, fairy tale goes she was just deemed the prettiest so her sisters always resented her and uh cocteau instead of going with three i think brothers which was in the original fairy tale he just uh uh gave the merchant just to simplify things uh ludovico they just have one brother and he comes into play uh later in the film but um the point I'm making is is that they live in this it's like a chateau and um, Cocteau took his inspiration I believe from uh, Vermeer's Vermeer yes painting yes and later on in the film when we are introduced to the forest and the beast's castle that was from another painter whose, whose name I don't recall uh, uh, who's, and do I who is uh, famous for his uh, ornate uh, uh, drawings Gustav Doré. Thank you, Demon. Dima. Demon's here uh, uh, recording it for us. <laughs> and uh, so, so, yeah, I, I, I am fascinated by the idea that the production design and the way light falls on uh, uh, the characters and just the overall ambiance is taken from uh, uh, Cocteau's appreciation for classic uh, art. Well, he was a poet, he was a dramatist, he was an artist. Yeah. he wasn't a filmmaker primarily. Boy, you sure can tell he's a, he's a poet. I was reading the, uh, uh, his uh, detailed diary on the making of the film, and he says some of the most like that was published, eloquent things about uh, just the day-to-day life of filmmaking. Uh, just it's it's. I highly recommend it. It's it's uh, it's, it's fascinating. It,
1: is, it in, uh, is it in
0: print? It's right here. It is. You got print. it right there. Yeah, oh, Dima loaned it. it to me. Uh, well, oh, Dima, okay. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I'm uh, I. In what I what to recall are the last few days in which they were filming, and uh, if, if I can if I can be so bold as to quote Cocteau, he said he writes, and I and I just totally related to this because he talks about um, uh, you know getting to know your crew over the months that they filmed this, and I think it was late 1945, early 46. One of the first films filmed in France after World War II. Uh, he says, I know. I know these, how these schedules work out. On paper, they mean something. In practice, nothing. The end of the film creates a, a, a sort of a fervor of clumsiness. Thousands of, unforeseen, thousands of unforeseen difficulties arise. And this is where he, he has one day left at the studio and, and he has 10 scenes to shoot which is kind of an impossible situation, but, you know, you, you deal with it. It seems like every day on this film, it seemed to him, he was just running into impossible situations and just seeing how the day worked out, you know? And a, and a lot of filmmakers have to do that. I mean, you can plan and plan and plan, and then, you know, you get to the site where you actually have to film, and then, you,
1: you know, you just get what you get, ultimately. He really did do all those last scenes in one day?
0: Uh, he talked in the book about how I, he had... Actually, he thought that he had enough time, I think, to get three scenes done, but he really needed to do ten, and he only had one day left in the studio in Paris. So, you know, the
1: guy's got to deal with some problems. <laughs> yeah, <would> so. <laughs> it doesn't look they like compensated, it, compensated. You know? It doesn't look like that. It doesn't feel like it. <laughs> no. uh, I mean, it's interesting. He um, um, uses these two painting sources, yet the structure of the thing, uh, it's so funny that he makes the change to the two nasty doors. So we have got almost like a Cinderella uh, variation story here. Uh, yeah, yeah, you yeah.
0: know, I was thinking Sleeping Beauty, but yeah, but Cinderella, yeah.
1: I'm dying to see Catherine Brier's Sleeping Beauty. Yeah, <laughs> uh, over at the Brattle, uh, dying for that one. But anyway, back at um, back with uh, this, the um, he is so painterly mm-hmm. in in this that the uh, the tension uh, between. The real world that she inhabits, and her escape—you know—you have, you mm-hmm. have this wonderful fantasy. You do have a basic one to escape from, but you know, a little place, except for the mean sisters, it, it,
0: it is kind a- of an escape. That, that's a that's a very good analogy. In fact, um, there there's there's an extra feature on this DVD where uh, a fella from South Carolina has is it a show criterion, called uh, uh, DVD? the Criterion DVD. Yeah, okay. yeah, there's an episode called Cinematic Eye where they talk about. Uh, uh, the making of Beauty and the Beast, and in uh, uh, later on in that uh, in that short featurette, um, they talk about the Beast's castle and the forest being somewhat representative of death, and death as it is a recurrent theme in Cocteau's films. Mm-hmm. In other words, as as um, Beauty goes against her father's wishes to place herself before the Beast and be killed instead of him. Uh, just getting back to the story uh, Mm -hmm. the the merchant has lost all of his money they've temporarily become poor I guess, a ship is going to be coming into port Uh, he doesn't get there in time and his creditors take whatever was left on the ship so he uh, very sadly has to go back to his family, he gets lost in the forest, he ends up picking a rose from the beast's garden and that mere act, Mm -hmm. he has been condemned condemned to death but he has to go visit his daughters, he has three days to get back but instead of Uh, the merchant coming back Beauty does she goes back to uh, give her life to the uh, to the beast and the analogy I think that they're making is is that the beast or the beast castle is like is like limbo it's like it's like death Uh, if that's what you were thinking if that's if that if that's something that's not uh, out of the
1: realm of absurdity well of course the next film that he makes is very much about death yes Orpheus yeah and so, yes. And there's Blood of a Poet, his film from 19. Which is surprisingly yeah. violent. Yeah. Well, you know what's surprisingly faithful uh, is there have been a few remakes of Beauty and the Beast, but no attempt at, uh, mm-hmm. no attempt at doing this. Uh, there was one with George C. Scott. I haven't seen that, that yet. It was made for TV. Huh. Uh, it, the, the two other versions of it are totally forgettable, except for the Disney version. Mm-hmm. where he goes back and he actually recreates the castle and the special uh, effects, uh, the operas and things like that. Yeah, And the forest is more terrifying in the Disney version than it is here, which is unlike a Disney film. It is strange how he brings the forest to life here. You
0: you, you can see in Cocteau's uh, uh, um, presenting the forest that whenever they enter the forest, the leaves part. Yes. And the branches come back together. And it's as if it's inviting... And closing itself off to you, it's it's like a living thing. Like, like in a way, the castle's like a living thing. Mm-hmm. Creepy, strange. Can I ask? Have you uh, when you were working at the Coolidge? Did you ever program Beauty and
1: the Beast? Of course. Did you? I'm trying to think the context for it. and I don't remember that, but yes, because uh, that would have been the last time I would have seen the film on a screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, would have been at the Coolidge, and um, and I, I always like films that have fantasy, but I I also like as with this film, and there's a dark side to it. Yeah. You use the word creepy. Um, um, I need to expand my... Yeah, no, go ahead. Yeah, similar. Yeah,
0: I need to use different words besides creepy is basically what I'm saying.
1: <laughs> okay. Um, because um, that's why I say it, it, the way it's designed, it, it, it has, on the one hand, awe and wonder, mm-hmm. but also fear, because it is unknown and new. It's new and unknown. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, um, and, of course... There is an arc of some sort in the film, um, and it's uh, her, you know, falling in love with the beast.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And mm-hmm. Um, and what, what does that? What does that represent? Um, what does she see in the beast? Is it just simply a fantasy, or is there something in him uh, that um, that she doesn't have in the world she came from? Mm-hmm.
0: Well, you know, I can't. <laughs> I, I I asked myself, what in the world was she thinking? <laughs> okay, <laughs> I mean, I, I uh, it's it's as if in the film that they 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 proclaim their caring for each other, they proclaim their love. So it, so it's like I'm not entirely convinced of it that she when she says that she she loves the beast and that that them being without each other, each of them in their own way is going to die from grief. I mean, it's it's overly melodramatic, but you know, in a, in a very
1: simple story
0: sense, it works.
1: It works well, it works like a myth as a story it, it certainly does you uh they um uh he's uh um, i mean she's beautiful, mm-hmm. and you can see why he would fall for her, but his nobility anyway uh and the incongruity of this behavior being at odds with his appearance with the exception of the way he dresses uh, um, yeah he was a very the beast is a very fashionable dresser i must say that is an outlandish costume he has yeah totally (laughs) totally well the um uh uh, but you don't get the kind of because this is a myth a fairy tale uh um you don't get any anything like this is not a fun romance Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. we're not dealing with a, a, a conventional love story.
0: Would you say that this is an exercise for Cocteau? Because he wanted to prove his abilities to transfer a story visually. Um, was, this, was this a way to uh, prove to other people that he could do something just exceptionally fanciful?
1: I had never had that feeling that he was trying to prove something. I think he just wanted to do it. Hmm. I mean, he is. He, he had done Blood of a Poet fifteen years earlier, which is certainly a film worth watching. And um, but that was within the framework of the French avant-garde. Um, uh, it was funded, as were Bunuel's early films, by a guy named the Viscount de Noailles, and who was, uh, you know, a patron. But he shared um, that whole. Uh, uh, he was a patron of a lot of things going on in Paris in the late late 20s and early 30s. Mm-hmm. I think he was part of the money behind on de deloup, for example, and um, uh, Lage door. And so even though he was wealthy himself, he uh, and perhaps a member of the bourgeoisie.
0: My impression was he was involved with Lage door but he wanted to disc himself from it because he didn't consider himself didn't want to be branded as a surrealist. But I could be wrong.
1: The Vicente Noai or cocktail? Um, cocktail. Okay, no, no. The Vicente Noir is just no. He just um, yeah. He he didn't mind. Um, uh. What's interesting is that um, when I first saw *Shinando Lu*, it was paired, as it was conventionally in film with film programming in the seventies and early eighties. It was paired with *Blood of a Poet*. Hmm. The two of them were linked. And uh, certainly for people from my generation, uh, that was the way that the films were, were sort of—they you know, were definitely combined—and um, they didn't do L'Age d'Or and *Blood of a Pope*, but *Loom* I mean, *Blood of a Pope*. But, um, uh, but in the minds of those of us who went to them. So we looked for the surreal, surrealist aspects of uh, *Blood of a Poet*.
0: Do you recall seeing *Beauty and the Beast* as a child? Did it get a a release in the late forties here?
1: It did get a release. and um, I um, um, my parents took me to a lot of films back then, and I think I did see it. I did. It, did I have the, you know didn't have the same impact on me say as say *Bambi* did when I was four years old, mm-hmm. but um, um, but it was it, in my mind. It sort of had the aura of a movie like Michael Powell's The Red Shoes. You went to see these films, which are just magnificent films for the family. Mm -hmm. And um, they were slow and they were arty. Uh, But these were good things for us. Now, there's no... I'm not saying it doesn't take away from the quality of them. But this is the kind of thing that my parents, who wanted me to get some sort of education uh, and... um, the uh, so I did see it in the theater before I was twelve, and um, and struggled through the subtitles mm-hmm. as best I could. Mm-hmm. But the visuals in the film are so stunning. There really are some striking striking shots, and that the dialogue isn't, at least as I remember it, isn't. That great. I mean, it's nothing wrong with it, but it doesn't strike me as like, oh my God. Um, uh, it reminds me of when I took my son to see a Fellini film when he was six years old and uh, uh, for his birthday. And I kept on trying to translate the, I'm mean, not to try, I was trying to read him the subtitles mm-hmm. in English. And he said, you don't need to, Dad. Um, the images are telling me everything.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And to a certain extent, he does that. He, you can tell. Cocteau
0: does that with the story, and he takes such great care in filming even the. It looked like even the most minor uh, of insert shots, particularly if you recall the rose yes. when he first oh. uh, and and how the how the shadows change on the rose. Uh, it, it's it's really a, a stunning piece of photography. Oh. um the, the scene where Bell first enters the castle and everything is done in slow motion it's it's uh it's uh, it's elegant it really is and I always found it interesting that um, oh here's the we're, we're actually watching some shots from the film mm-hmm. and in this we're, uh, here the merchant has just picked the rose and the rose it, it's as if the shadows change around the rose you know it, 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 it goes from light to dark dark to light
1: it is funny because this is so classic in its own way mm-hmm. that this is his, Cocteau's films, in spite of the fact they were experimental and he was doing new things with film, not using film in a conventional way, the French New Wave basically bypassed him.
0: You know, I think they may have considered him something to rebel against, but also I think there were, there were a lot of elements that they took from him. Yeah. You know, and, and, and especially in terms of the, the supposed simplicity of his uh, uh, productions. You know, I mean, for all it looks, you know, in a way, it does look like a in in a way a big budget Hollywood film. But these were these were actual houses, you know, that they filmed in, and uh, you know, there were interior Mm -hmm. sets in Paris, but it was really stuff that they found and the the uh, abilities of his location managers, which uh, manager, which he talked uh, quite a bit about in the making of the film. So, you know,
1: well, the early films of the French Way were highly using. the more portable cameras; and they were totally outside the studio system. Mm-hmm. Even though Truffaut goes back into it a little bit toward the end of his life, mm. but um, and this is yeah, it, it, there was a rebellion against films that were made largely in studios.
0: Let, let me ask you. Uh, let me ask you a question about the Beast. He, uh, oh. as he is somebody that that comes to be quite, you know. Uh, Um, cared for by Bell, the way he's introduced in the film is to elicit fear. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the very moments that the merchant takes the rose, he's condemned to death as if the beast is a killer. And we constantly, or, or periodically I guess, uh, get the impression that the beast is a killer because one of the moments in the film that I guess is uh, described in the titles at the beginning is that after after the beast is killed or after someone is killed, their hands smoke. Mm-hmm. So there's a number yes. of moments in the film where the beast's hands are smoking and yeah. you're thinking, He's just killed. Be it a, be it a. I guess, I guess maybe a deer, or, 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 maybe even a human. I don't know. But it, it kind of makes him a hard protagonist to like. You know. I mean, why would Bell be interested in someone that's obviously uh, uh, committing atrocities or instilling fear in people? I'm just Is that a hard reading. Uh,
1: no, I'm just reading a script where this woman. What do you see in this guy? He rides motorcycles and, and, and uh, uh, he's a terrible person, right? I'm, there, yeah. there, I just know too many people in that mm. but the guy is dashing in his own way he's mm. mysterious and he's dashing do you think that there was anything uh,
0: was was this a, in, in any way a vanity project since Cocteau was having a, a relationship with his main actor here Jean Marais yeah. and, um, and he I believe plays three roles uh, the beast uh, the the uh, Abno, right. right? If I'm pronouncing his name correctly, so. which is who he is, uh, Bell's original suitor at the beginning right. of the movie, and she turns him down after he asks for her hand in marriage, uh,
1: and uh, the prince. Well, let me ask you on the reverse: Is there a way? I mean, obviously, and Jean Marais was used in I think almost all of of uh, Cocteau's films through Testament of Orpheus. Mm-hmm. And uh, they um, – uh, uh, apart from the fact knowing they were – I mean, the guy seems you know, really gay in sort of like the Rock Hudson Square jaw school of, of uh, acting. Oh, this uh, – this
0: <laughs> I'm not really familiar with Jean Marais, but he was – He's after watching Beauty and the Beast twice yesterday and, uh, and reading up on him, he looks very much the swashbuckler type.
1: And I must say he's also sporting a mullet here well, I just <laughs> but, sort of but anyway, I just sort of always found him uh stiff uh and um and so what we were talking about earlier there's that great line that Greta Garbo had at the end of the winter first watching the film said, like, "Give me back my beast, you know when he goes to the prince comes. it is
0: intriguing that they would consider him being revealed as the prince a bit of a disappointment
1: and I wonder and it's kind of weird because i I don't see that kind of irony at work here. I see a lot of, you know, paradox, mm-hmm. but if, if he's cast as the guy who she'd already rejected, uh, when he sees her then, why didn't she, Ah, I just got rid of you. You right. know, as, and, if, and- as if,
0: there's re- what's required is just a simple twist in personality. Uh, yeah. Like you, like you were, you were already good looking, but it was something about you. It was you, it was your virtue or something
1: that needed to be improved. And I, I can't, certainly in subsequent in, the, in the, if the four or five times I've seen it since I saw it when I was much younger. Mm-hmm. I, I, Without having known that quote from Greta Garbo, um, I, um, I've always felt a sense of disappointment rather than triumph at the end. I've loved uh, all yeah. the way through the film the magic and the mystery of the beast. And uh, of course, she's easy to look at too. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, there's a kind of way that And because the wonderland of the castle uh, is so extraordinary that, oh, back to reality. Um, That's no fun. Um, And that's my own impression. But there's so much that goes into the creation of the woods and the castle. So much that would be appealing. And then as we get to know the beast better, our own sympathies are for the beast, Mm-hmm. and um it's surprisingly how it's it's surprising to me that uh, having
0: you know having watched it with other people that they became um uh, developed empathy for him. Yeah.
1: You know, and like all, beyond the all the way thinking. that I can remember my own response to the film, yeah, you don't want the beast to die. You really don't. And uh the um um that can be well he, he, of course he's not made to be a classic bad guy. I mean, it's the whole way that you know, like warner brothers films from the 30s where mm-hmm. you know jimmy cagney would die at the end we still sort of like him uh or um but in this particular film it's just because Cocteau has always dealt very much i mean he's, he, his films have always looked good and there's always mm-hmm. been sort of a mythical and maybe testament of orpheus not so much but uh but the others have had this element of, of fantasy so that mm-hmm. the commitment is to that and to the artifice and the artistry of that and uh, presumably this is a The castle is a creation Or an extension of the beast's powers And so that Reality becomes For me, sort of a disappointment It's as if the beast is always Watching who's ever in the castle Because mm-hmm.
0: you have the living statues And, and the, the living um, um, Furniture, as it were And uh, even though he only appears Apparently at 7 o'clock every night uh, the, cats, the castle is like uh, It's like you know, it's like the womb of the beast. I mean, it's like the beast's uh, an extension of him, mm-hmm. and uh, maybe, maybe it's 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 like the the beauty being cared for here. But ironically, it was the same place that he was going to kill her father. Yes. So maybe um, uh, you know, it's 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 it, it, it's conflicting in a sense. Actually, uh, one thing I would have loved to have. Oh, this is a great shot here, where Beauty, uh, we're watching the film, where she is uh, drawn, it seems magically, as if she's not walking, uh, down the hallway with the curtains
1: flowing in the castle. Well, in a way, too, as she's not in her scenes at home, she's almost, uh, uh, she's entranced, she's in a, it's almost like a trance-like setting. Yeah, yeah. um, And so the... Uh, Bruno Bettelheim had a book uh, uh, that really was influential on a lot of my thinking about fairy tale, the uses of enchantment, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and the uh, and it would have been useful for me to have gone back and read what he had to say about not the film but Beauty and the Beast. Uh, uh, and you get you know, and they speak more metaphorically than they speak, you know. Hey God, I really I can't get over this. I'm not having you don't have any lines like, God, I'm really developing some feelings for you. You know that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And uh, you know, it's, it's,
0: fa- it's fascinating here that it's uh, she. She seems um, uh, you know enchanted by the uh, by the palace, and then when she walks into what is uh, Beauty's room, which is which is a bedroom that's sort of a forest in and of itself, mm-hmm. which is kind of like God, sleeping with Beauty. It's it's like this. Uh, magical forest bedroom and then it has there's this mirror that comes into play which apparently is something that when you look into the mirror it shows you what the mirror thinks you yes. are but it's also kind of a um, uh, a window into a parallel existence in other words she can look into the mirror and see how her father's doing at home and uh, but other people can also look into the mirror and see what the mirror actually sees of
1: them. Yes, and that the mirror gadgets. is a motif throughout all of all of uh, Cocteau's work. Hmm. I mean, it's a glass door that Orpheus goes through, and so the, but there's, it has a reflective quality.
0: Do you think that there's any any significance to the fact that when Ave, uh, I'm pronouncing his name incorrectly, uh, Aben yeah, uh, and Ludovic. Uh, conspire to kill the beast, so they mm-hmm. they show up at the castle, and uh, there's a fantastic skylight that's covered in vines, mm-hmm. and they crash through the skylight, and he says, "Glass, it's glass is glass." You know, mm-hmm. does that play into anything that Cocteau has, uh, you know,
1: his use of glass mirrors? I have to think that because there are a lot of his stuff. All I know is that the imagery. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to follow it through with the use of mirrors and windows. Mm-hmm. Uh, reflexive imagery. And again, um, it's interesting you point out those these scenes here in Beauty and the Beast because uh, 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 it's like the nature of the screen itself. Is it something through which we look through? To see something, the world outside the mm-hmm. documentary aspect of film, or is it a mirror? Interesting. And that's, and I think part of Cocteau's aesthetic certainly would have been the understanding of that of that quality. is why these things crop up so much in his films. There's five secrets to Beast Power, and he explains them to uh, uh, Beauty. There's the mm-hmm. rose,
0: the mirror, the key, the horse, and the glove. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's in a way it's the significance of the props. And they, they all sort of factor into his um, uh, being imprisoned like this. Are they, in a sense, keys themselves? Uh, I mean, uh, or, or are these things that just come to life whenever beauty is around? I, I don't...
1: Well, the... Um, uh, well, it is... If they are, to, if it is that way, uh, it is, you know, truly that beauty saves the beast. Mm-hmm. Which is, of course, King Kong.
0: It's almost like he needs to be saved from his belongings. You know, he, he has everything any, anybody could ever want, uh, but yet he's exceptionally unhappy. Obviously, because he's incredibly unhappy. Well, he is ugly, unhappy, but, uh, but uh, it's 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 also, I suppose, the message that having everything doesn't give you happiness. Uh, you know, he's he's uh, he's trapped by the things that he owns.
1: Well, yes, but. Still, I mean, that's why he comes out looking as Jean Marais at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, on the one hand, our sympathies are with him as the beast, but on the other hand, he sees himself, and he is sad. He does a great job of mourning mm-hmm. himself. Uh, the, um, uh, But he definitely he, he is trapped. Now, whether we feel that the castle is a trap or not, I would balk at that, but that he's he's trapped – by whatever the forces of nature are, mm-hmm. uh, look at those close-ups.
0: You know, those I was just eyes. thinking the same thing. Really, just spectacular, spectacular close-ups, uh, particularly of the beast and uh, uh, the the makeup that he went through to uh, you know to the, the, the Jean Marais. Every morning, apparently, it was three I mean- hours to do the face, and then two hours to do the hands, and it was based on the the makeup effects that were created for
1: uh, 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 the Wolf Man. Right.
0: But apparently, these guys, the, the, another one. I thought one the guy of,
1: who did The Hands was involved with a Hollywood film. Hmm. I read that someplace.
0: When you showed, uh, when you programmed Beauty and the Beast at the Coolidge, did
1: you, did you do uh, so for uh, singular screenings or for weeks on end? What type of- oh, no. They were, it was um, like, like a weekend or something like that, and uh-huh. maybe during the holidays. Uh, because it's the kind of film that the kind of audience that normally goes to the Coolidge, which is an art house audience, yeah. they would bring their children to see it. Mm-hmm. It's, a, no, it's like certain films are arm twisters for me for parents of a certain type th- films like the Red Shoes and Beauty and the Beast right. they want to have their children see them mm-hmm. and uh the uh, and so um uh and so uh a theater like the Coolidge, which has a certain kind of clientele, sophisticated clientele, it's a standard art house theater there the, the uh, and was never known for having children's matinees. So part of one of the things, because what we did when we were at the Coolidge, what I did, uh, it, it almost <laughs> killed the whole theater. I got back <laughs> the, uh, uh, the 50th anniversary uh, re- uh, restoration of uh, Fantasia. Oh, right, right. And yeah. um, I, we got it in 70 millimeter. And th- th- we, had to, we spent $10,000 on, on the projection booth. Because they had to work to the very detailed uh, specifications of uh, of the Disney folk.
0: Really? Did they did they do the um, uh, particular surround sound system that they yeah, built for? Yeah, we had to install a uh, sound system.
1: Uh, everything. And it was uh, at that point the big screen theater in town was the Charles. Yeah. Down on Cambridge Street, Rest in, peace. in Government Center, but they would not spend the money to accommodate the. Uh, and we decided to do it. People told me it was like Seward's Folly. You'll never get Fantasia we ended up being the flagship theater for it. And the two things that are there, this is why I, I programmed Beauty and the Beast. Because um, 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 we did do it in 70 millimeter. Mm-hmm. We were the flagship theater. Five or six other theaters in Boston area were showing it. And the then film critic at the uh, at Channel 4, Joyce Kohaywuk, reviewed it out of the Coolidge. And she, her last line uh, in the review of the film, uh, even though it was playing every place, not um, see it at the Coolidge, it's an event. Mm-hmm. And so, what that And people drove up from K- Rhode Island and Connecticut to see it in 70 millimeter on our screen. They came down from New Hampshire. But getting back to Beauty and the Beast again, it's you know, it's that kind of film. It's artsy enough, it's an adult film, right? I mean, but it's safe to take kids to. And the other thing, too, because at that point, well, the Coolidge still is the last. Real example Coolidge is a safe
0: place To take kids to
1: Sure But it's also The last example It is Even though people Like me Were running it uh, And Because uh, we started With a little help From Dima here uh, Midnight movies At the um, At the Coolidge Did you run the Beauty, Beauty and the Beast As a midnight No But I ran Babe as a midnight film <laughs> Okay um, the um, And it worked um, The um, But the The um, but no, because uh, it's, it's a twofold thing. A movie as is a film as good looking as this film is on mm. what was then the biggest screen in Boston. Um, the uh, And uh, so not only can the children, with a little help from their parents, experience uh, a great film, but they can also experience a great theater. And when we, which we, is part of the appreciation of the film. It's a very important
0: element of appreciating a film is, is the ambience in which you're seeing it. It, it, it. it does heighten the effect and the impressiveness of the film. And I think that the Beauty and the Beast, particularly
1: at the Coolidge, would have been a very um, uh, impressive experience. What is that? And just like, um, just like in, in our uh, heroine here, um, the film itself uh, did inspire and does inspire both fear and wonder. Mm-hmm. That's, a good that's a good way to put it, and I think the um, and that's the film truly is magical, uh, and um, no matter what one way you might want to think through about in terms of what cocktail was up to. Um, when you
0: screened it at the Coolidge, did you include the? Uh, there, I guess was there ever an option to do Philip Glass's score, or was or was that a live performance score, kind of like the Ally
1: Orchestra would do? Um, I didn't know he did one of this. He did one for Orpheus with a libretto. That mm. and Philip Glass did uh score for Orpheus using all of the libretto from Orpheus. And I went to see that at the American Repertory Theater. Um, what we did for, but I didn't show Beauty and Beast as part of this. no, uh, no, I did. That's it. I knew I did it that way. Thanks for reminding me. Mm. We did we did a partnership with the American Repertory Theater, which was premiering Orpheus. And what I did do was um, do a three-week repertory series, Uh, films by Cocteau, films um, um, with the Orpheus myth. So, I showed Black Orpheus and the Fugitive Kind. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so, Cocteau films uh, and then films scored by uh, Philip Glass. So that was my way of conceiving a repertory series hmm. in Beauty and the Beast because it was obviously it's a cocktail film and there was no way one does. I mean, it's almost from a programmatic standpoint, um, the film still is all these years later, legendary. And uh, for parents of a certain type or grandparents now of a certain type, you got to go see this one. If this if this were playing, uh, I have a new granddaughter and uh, when she's seven or eight and a 5 still mobile Um, Oh, got to go see this one.
0: Yeah, uh, I'm told that Ned showed it over at the Brattle as part of their Elements of Film series on Saturday morning, which is a free screening series that they do periodically. And hopefully this will be a part of it again. They show some great uh, Elements of Film um, uh, screenings, some really great titles, 500 Blows. Uh, or 400, 400 blows blows. In, uh Beauty and the Beast And I think they also showed uh, Oh, what was the one With the house building uh, 1948 uh, Cary Grant I think it was Mr. Blanding's builds dream house Mr. Blanding's dream house
1: Yes I'd be
0: curious to see How they <laughs> tackled that one
1: That was I a big hit It actually uh, I haven't seen that Since I was 8 years old uh, Good film, actually I remember it being good Yeah uh, My that was, My parents went to An awful lot of movies My dad <laughs> Took me to see Hamlet When I was 8 or 9 years old The Laurence Olivier Hamlet Um I actually, they took me to see the first film that Ingmar Bergman ever wrote a screenplay for, a hmm. film by his mentor, Alf Schilberg, and it was called Torment. It's not, oh, I th- okay. And, uh, I thought I was he's of some of that. No, that's the first Bergman film to be distributed in this country. It's not part of a porn circuit. <laughs> um, so I went back years later to see Torment. I said, I can't my parents took me to see this? Now, the Beauty and the Beast, where there's clearly... Um, uh, uh, a sexual uh, undertone, but it's not too subtle in this. Uh, uh, we, you know, got various things like this, like interpretations of Little Red Riding Hood and, and all of that kind of stuff that that goes on here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's that great kind of film that uh, kids fly right over the, the heads of kids uh and um and uh making somebody joy for the wonderful fantasy that it is. <laughs> sort of like sort of like the magical mystery tour. It's it's about drugs, but it's not. You know yeah, it's I, palatable for all ages. Yeah, I suppose <laughs> if it were shown in the sixties, I people probably got stoned to or, see uh, uh, Beauty and the sorry. Beast. Yeah, But it is that mm-hmm. kind of like, that that kind of film. But no seriously, I think the idea I'm glad I remember because you asked me if I did show Beauty and the Beast then I remember the context very specifically. And I deliberately showed on the weekends, I deliberately showed matinees of it so that the families could come out. You know, surprising that Cocteau
0: didn't make more films. But then, you know, he, he had always other wasn't in The Greatest of Health and uh, he had uh, other things going on. And he, and he detailed uh, extensively how ill he was during the production of this film. Mm-hmm. It seemed as though everything was falling apart. His, his health, he, he, he even had a skin disease, which I think some people have said plays into the whole idea of him being the beast, of him being the person he didn't think he was, at least on the outside. Uh, another element there. But, you know, it's also a story about how a filmmaker is able to overcome, like, incredible obstacles and able to create something just masterful.
1: Well, one of the reasons that um, he was rejected in part... Uh, when the French New Wave came along. Uh, well, it, why, why hold him as a standard? But, but anyway. No, that's you know. right. But, no, but he and others were. Uh, uh, Clouseau and uh, the people who did films like, oh, God. I mean, all these films are starring Maria Schell. And um, the um, – uh, but no, um, because a possible interpretation of the beast being him, because there's no way of not seeing the autobiographical element in the Orpheus films mm-hmm. and uh, blood of the poet 15 years earlier so to a certain extent uh, and that's part of the things that the French new wave didn't like uh, you know his films were always very precious and they're always about himself and his artistry and his, his art mm-hmm. and yeah uh, and they are uh, very I mean first film blood of a poet mm-hmm. pain written to do it and who's the poet it, it's Cocteau mm. and um, after all, Whatever Cocteau found in the fable, um, I would assume you've got the suffering beast, but the suffering beast is also, my sense is, he's created this this magical place as an extension. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. So I think that's a possible way of looking at it.
0: You um, know, and it, it one could say that that um, the way he talks, the way Cocteau talks about working on a film crew, that 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 was his his element, his 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 magical situation here, because he liked the idea of of all sorts of um inspired and artistically minded people coming together, you know, with a single mind to create something greater than themselves. And he talks about how it uh, how it how it you know comes together. but then as the film moves on, uh, people's minds move elsewhere. and he sees the the impending death of his his creation as it's as it's slowly, you know, Halting, uh, so so. It seems like he's always looking at something, or or at least in the making of this film, looking at it from like like an artist's
1: circle perspective, and then lamenting its passing. After all, he takes the Orpheus myth a couple of years later, and of course, it ends in the death of the artist.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to mention, uh, so I mentioned towards the beginning of the podcast that Criterion's releasing uh, has just released Beauty and the Beast on Blu-ray, and it has a couple of really great extra features on it. There's an additional audio commentary from, um, well, there's the original author uh, audio commentary from film, uh, film historian film historian Author Knight, but there's also mm-hmm. a new audio, audio commentary from someone I think you're familiar, uh, familiar with, uh, Sir uh, Christopher Frayling. Yep. Um, also, there is a documentary on a 1995 documentary on the making of Beauty of the Beast called Screening at the Majestic, uh, which which I haven't seen. Uh, looking forward to it. Uh, plus, behind the scenes photo stills, lots of great stuff. You know the way Criterion always does it. It's it's uh, yeah, it's good. That's good. That's worthwhile.
1: Well, thanks <laughs> for talking with us. Just whoever, whoever has, you know, get the, the largest size um, um, uh, monitor you can possibly find because it's such a visually eloquent film that you just really want to see it as much, to, as close to a big screen as you can.
0: Hmm. I look forward to seeing it on the big screen. In fact, I regret the fact that I haven't seen it over at uh, over
1: at the Coolidge. So hopefully that'll happen sometime soon. Thanks for talking with us. I've enjoyed it. Appreciate it. Uh, it expanded my thoughts about Beauty and the Beast. Which is a film worth expanding one's slots about.